from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And we are here for another fresh and exciting episode of the Badass Counseling Show, and it's a lightning round. It is a New Year's lightning round. That means it's everything new, and we are addressing all things New Year and other ancillary questions that may have nothing to do with the New Year. I welcome you to the show. Uh, I am here in studio with KC over in the booth, and I've got Rob right next to me. Rob, what's the good word of the day? I'm doing great, Sven. You rock, oh. and I, I roll with you. Well, God bless you. You make it work. Couldn't do it without that guy. Yeah. And to all of you tuning in from as far away as the UK and way down south, way up north, uh, it's great to have you here. It's great to have you here. As you know, we release the lightning rounds on Sundays at 12.01 a.m. And we do release counseling shows on Thursdays at 12.01 a.m. And so I'm going to get going right here. I've got people feeding me questions live from all around the world, and I'm ready to take your questions. So... Lay it on me, fine people. Lay it on me. All right. Rainy B says, my ex-narc is in a relationship with a new supply. Why does he keep reaching out to me? It's over. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. My ex-narc is in a relationship with a new supply. Why does he keep reaching out to me? <laughs> um, because he wants as much as he can get. And so he's got a new supply and he's trying to get you on the side. I mean, if you're a person with absolutely no morality, why not do that? And so he's wanting you. He's wanting you as, you know, one in his back pocket and one that he's working. And then he rotates them daily. And for all you know, there's a third or a fourth, as you likely know well, since he's your ex. Um, and yet it seems to bother you. It be, and not bother you like, um, you know, gee, I miss him or anything like that. You're saying, why does he keep reaching out to me? Because he wants you back while having this other person. Now, the question becomes, are you taking his calls? Are you answering his text? Are you still in any way in conversation with him? And if so, you got to ask yourself the question, why? What need is being met for you? Why haven't you just blocked him yet? Why do you keep feeding back into that? Because clearly it's keeping you looped in to the point where you're even putting up a question here saying, gosh, why is he doing this? What's going on? That You're still expending mental energy rather than getting on with your life. Next question. How do I get payback on my ex-narcissist? How do I get payback? Well, uh, I'm going to assume by payback, meaning you want to get him back. I mean, get at him, like fuck with him, like hurt him, like take him down, like fuck with him that way. Not payback like he actually owes you money or something like that. Um, so you're asking, how do I get payback on my, you didn't say from my, you said on my. So how do I get payback on my ex-narcissist? Um <laughs> I'm really not in the business of seeking revenge or even giving someone their comeuppance as it's been my experience that people tend to get their comeuppance. He will get his comeuppance, all right? He will get, you know, call it karma, call it whatever you like. But, uh, you know, the shit that goes around comes around, right? <clears throat> but what you've got to ask yourself, well, you don't have to, but what I would recommend you ask yourself is why do I still want payback on an ex? 
Now, I get it. I've been there, right? I have exes, and I had them, right? I was in two long-term relationships and uh, many, many years ago, and yeah, I had hatred and anger inside of me for the times that I was hurt or taken advantage of or had things uh, that were precious to me stolen from me. And so I had that rage, and I wanted it. And then what I realized several years later is I was just carrying around this, like, toxicity inside of me. And I had to let it go. And we had, with one of them, we had been in a sort of a war for quite some time. <laughs> I was always losing um, because I was never any good in court and whatever. And uh, I finally had to come to the place mentally, for me personally, where this is the metaphor. Imagine two army enemies encamped on opposite sides of a river. And they've been shelling each other incessantly for years and I finally got sick of it. And I knew that I had a cloud of toxicity in me and around me, and I was sick of it. I was just sick of having so much negativity in my life. And I don't mean just her, it's just the, the rage and the desire for justice that I was carrying around inside of me. And then about 10 years later, after all this warring and so on and so forth, I basically told all of my troops on my side of the river, to get the semi-trucks and let's load up the semi-trucks with all of our arsenal of weaponry and ammunition and so forth. And we loaded up all these semi-trucks and we drove them across the bridge over the river and we parked them all over there, left the keys in them and we walked back. I'm reminded of that great quote by the Nez Perce uh, Native American chief, uh, what was his name? Mm, can't remember it, who said, I will fight no more forever. And that ran through my head uh, when, I, when I did this, that I am going to get my ass handed to me, and, but I am so tired of carrying around the hatred and the anger and the sadness and the hurt and the rage and all those feelings. And so when, um, when you ask the question, how do I get payback on my ex and my narcissist? I'm not in the revenge business, so I'm gonna have to, I'm, I'm afraid, I can't be of help to you on that one. But I can tell you the day may come when you get tired of carrying around the negativity because you got to look at it this way. Well, you don't have to, but think about it. If you still want revenge on someone, then they own you. They own you. They're not even trying and they have the power to make you fucking miserable, right? That here I am, they've moved on and I'm still wanting revenge on them or I'm wanting them to get their comeuppance and I'm wasting all this life energy. I'm hamstringing my own life. I'm not moving forward to find happiness in my life. I'm believing the only way I can be happy is to exact some sort of uh, revenge on them. And you know, you reach, I reach a point in my life and where I counsel my clients is like, as hard as it is to let go of it, give yourself the opportunity to let go of it and just build your own happiness. Because as some say, there's no revenge, like just fucking making yourself happy. All right, next question. How do we heal from a narcissist relationship? Uh, how do we not let it go into the next? You know, healing from a narcissist relationship really is at its brass tacks, no different from healing from any relationship or healing from any loss, uh, at least for me, in how I work with my clients. You guys have heard me say a million times that the essence of becoming authentic, the essence of living a happy life is that you have to get out of you the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself. It's not just the pain. That's huge, but it's getting that out. And as you know, I strongly recommend journaling, you know, journaling, 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 going to counseling. And there are some other things such as my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and some other resources in that book. 
you heal from it by going inside of it and flushing it out, flushing it out and flushing it out. And down deep inside of you, there were messages that you were taught about yourself at a very young age. And those messages set up, set up you walking into a relationship with a narcissist. You may think you were fine before that relationship, but I guarantee you, as a matter of absolute fact, there were beliefs down inside of you that you were taught about yourself that caused you to not see it coming, that caused you to not short-circuit it, or that caused an override, caused an override of your other good senses. In other words, once you drill down and identify those core beliefs, that's how you're now ready to move forward because it's those core beliefs. It's not the pain and it's not the fears that are doing the most damage. It's that those core beliefs that you can't even see, that you were taught about yourself that are undermining not, not just your primary relationships, but all of your relationships, friendships, work relationships, as well as your career trajectory, as well as you spend how you spend your own time. The core beliefs that we're taught about ourselves become the virus infecting the operating system of your entire life. Well, how do you get at those? Well, that's what I wrote the book for. There's a hole in my love cup um, to help you to literally hold, well, not literally, to metaphorically hold your hand and go down inside to those uh, core beliefs, identify them and begin to root them out. And let me tell you, when you begin to identify the core beliefs that have been running your life, everything fucking changes. I mean, like in fucking ways you can't even begin to fathom now. I mean, read people's comments on these um uh, on the, the videos that I do, read people's comments uh, on, you know, when you're watching me on, say, a TikTok live or something like that. And people talk about how, holy shit, Sven, when I began to identify those core beliefs, it radically changed everything. All right. Next question. How come core beliefs are hard to expose? Sometimes they come in unexpectedly. Generally, core beliefs uh, aren't something you acquire at any point past about age 10. The core beliefs that you're taught about yourself, the really core ones like I'm either wanted or not wanted, I am good or I'm not good enough, or I'm unworthy of love, those two are sort of wrapped together, or the, the most powerful one, who I really am doesn't matter. And those messages get conveyed by parents, the most powerful people in a child's life. They really have all the power. Um, they get conveyed in explicit and implicit ways. It's not always messages you were taught about yourself. And so I literally spent three chapters in the book just on this notion of messages and the messages that you aren't even aware that you received um, and some other uh, things in the book. But uh, you do it by having the right questions asked of you and drilling down and drilling down. It's much more difficult to do on your own. I had to do it on my own because this method didn't exist before I went through my own 12-year uh, suicidal depression and had to sort through it on my own because I didn't have any therapists who could help me. And so this stuff in the book is tried and true. It's tested, it works, and I've been using it for the last you know, 20, 30 years. Next question. All right, Lizzie says, uh, ask best advice for self-empowerment to overcome toxic shame. Shame is a feeling, very powerful, powerful feeling. And as with any feeling taken in mega doses, it can become highly toxic inside of us. See, a feeling isn't something outside of us. A feeling is something inside of us. Have you ever had the experience of, you know, you're going to uh, an event, uh, let's say a party, or uh, you're meeting your lover's family or something like that, and you're nervous? Or maybe you're going to go give a, a speaking 
do speak in front of a crowd or a small group or something like that, and you're nervous. And what happens when you're feeling anxious inside? What happens? Well, you have physical responses, right? And the first few times or many times, maybe when you're a kid or a young person, your pits sweat, maybe your palms sweat, get a little shaky in the knees, get butterflies in your tummy, right? All these things are physical manifestations of a feeling. It's just a feeling, right? Fear, anxiety, what if they don't like me? Um, hope that uh, they'll like me and all these things are feelings, but they take on a physical manifestation. That's how powerful feelings are. So then it only stands to reason then that a more powerful feeling will have a more powerful physical impact. In fact, there's been research done on that, a lot of research done on that. And The Body Stores Pain was a book that came out on that. Um, and so the point is, you ask the question, best advice for self-empowerment to overcome toxic shame. First of all, understanding that the power of toxic shame or the power of toxic love, the power of toxic hate, the power of toxic sadness, it has the power to overrun your life. And so best advice for self-empowerment, really, um, that's your question, is to not seek to empower yourself per se. I am a mad believer in that empowerment comes naturally when we get the shame out, when we get the rage out, when we get it out. And it doesn't mean it has to be directed at anyone. It means that what you do is you put pen to paper, you go to counseling, you uh, use the methods in my book that I talk about. Uh, you know, There's a hole in my love cup is the book or the Sedona method, which I recommend strongly in my book. It's not one of my books. Uh, Sedona method isn't, but these are all tools for getting it out. Toxic shame will only be solved when you get the shame out. If you're just trying to get positive or get motivated while that shame is inside of you, it's like you have one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. You're trying to go fast and go, and yet you're stuck in place all at the same time. You have to get out of you the very thing that's causing you to have your foot on the brake. All right, next question. Uh, traumatized, uh, asked the question, 2022 was full of tragedy and trauma. How do I leave that in the past? Precisely the same way of what I was just addressing on toxic shame. Uh, you have to begin to get it out. You, what I would recommend in that case is that you take pen to paper and you begin to list all of your traumatic experiences of 2022, literally bullet point them on a piece of paper. And maybe there's five, maybe there's 25. And then uh, next to that, or after each, uh, index, you then list all of the feelings that you have associated with that particular memory. So maybe it's disappointment, maybe it's rage, maybe it's excitement mixed with uh, fear. List all of the feelings that you have on each of those traumatic events from 2022. And if a person is really doing a deep dive, and I did this in my own life, and this is what I tell all of my clients, if you really want to scour the pot of all the caked in grease from your past and all the shit from your past, do this for every single memory in your past that you recall having an emotional charge. Every single memory you have, list them and list them and list them and list them. And for me, um, I use journaling, but I also use the Sedona method as a way to then release all of those feelings associated with every single one of those memories. But if you're not familiar with the Sedona method, just start journaling on it. Well, what was it that Steve said that made me so fucking pissed off? And oh, it was this and that. And well, why did that bother me so much? Oh, I realized it really triggered my fear of blah, 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 and going deeper and going deeper and just flushing and flushing and flushing. The, the way to get past something is to go further into it. Welcome it. See, the reason pain and, and, and energy and anxiety and uh, sadness and all those other things, the reason they get stored in the body is because when they come up, when we're feeling them in a situation, we resist them. We try to pack them back down, 
right? That which you resist persists and it's just sitting down there. But if you welcome a feeling, recognizing that it is going to pass, it will pass. If you allow it, if you welcome it, it will pass. And once you start doing that, with your charged memories, memories that have an emotional charge from your past, the more you start to do that and the more you start to do it in your present, the less those emotional charges store inside your body and have physical effects. Do you know how many clients over the years, over 30 years of counseling, how many clients I've asked, you know, do you believe, and everyone's different, but I asked the question, do you believe that there is a correlation between the physical ailments or physical problems that you've had, and all the emotional soul stuff inside of you. And I'm spitballing it here, but at least 75% say, oh, hell yes. Hell yes. That the emotional drain takes an extreme physical toll. So then it stands to reason, if you aren't getting out all of that shit, that that toxic shame, or the, the toxic uh, memories, charged memories from 2022, or anything else, if you're not getting those feelings out, if you're not taking them fucking seriously, and that doesn't mean looking at them from adult eyes and saying, oh, it wasn't so bad. It means re-experiencing it as that 10-year-old that got yelled at at the time, allowing the authenticity of those feelings, the real power of those feelings, giving them room to be what they were even then and flushing and flushing and flushing. And the more you do that, the lighter you become, the clearer you become, the more powerful you become. Now let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. Okay. Well, you've, you've heard the podcast, you've listened to other people's issues, maybe you've studied hundreds of Sven's text talk videos. Time to stop lurking, face your fears, and focus directly on the one person in your life who can benefit the most from Sven's experience and insight. Now, that would be you. Just go to badasscounseling.com and order Sven's book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Or check out his many video courses. Sven found a way to help himself out of a 12 years depression. It worked for him, and it can work for you too. Check out badasscounseling.com today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back for a lightning round. Taking your questions live, I'm in studio with Rob, the master technician, tactician, and with KC, the ever silent one, but oh, wielding so much power. Let's see, what have we got? Um, I like this. I have toxic traits I bring to my relationship. How do I improve? I do it subconsciously. All right. Now, see, this notion of subconsciously, this notion that there's shit down there that I, I'm not conscious of or that I can't see that's affecting me. Okay, so now we're rewinding back to what I was talking about earlier. This notion of core beliefs, this notion that there's some shit way the fuck down here that's driving the equation way up here on the surface of my life in the everyday interactions. It's not your principles that are driving your everyday interactions. It's like your everyday interactions are up here on the surface and about midway down are your principles. Like always save for a rainy day, be nice to strangers, um, you know, take your time, whatever your life principles are. But way down here are the core beliefs, the fears, the anxieties, the shit you are taught about yourself, both positive and negative. All of those are what's really driving those daily actions and encounters in your behaviors. The principles are really just backfill. <laughs> the principles are the, the the shit we tell people, and sometimes we even tell ourselves, to justify our actions. 
But I am of the absolute belief that what's really driving your behaviors day in and day out, year in and year out, is those core beliefs. And if you're not even aware of what your core beliefs are, one, or two, if you didn't even fucking choose your core beliefs, you may have chosen your principles to justify your actions, to justify the core beliefs you can't even see, but it's those core beliefs that are driving the equation of your life. And therefore, when people ask me questions like, oh, will a cheater ever cheat again? One of my responses is not if they don't change their core beliefs. A cheater or anyone else claiming, you know, I've changed, I've changed. I'm not a gambler anymore. I'm not a big mouth anymore. I'm not a know-it-all anymore, whatever it might be. Anybody who's saying they've changed their, their surface behaviors, I say, oh, well, we'll see. Give it a month. Give it six months. I'm willing to bet you'll revert. Why? Because trying to change behaviors never changes behaviors long-term. That's right. You heard me on that. Trying to change behaviors never changes behaviors long-term. Why? Because until you change the core beliefs that are driving those behaviors, the person will always revert to what I call, and I did a TikTok on this about a year ago this time, to what I call their default personality. Um, but no, you have to change those core beliefs and you have to get down there and dive into them and begin to identify them. And again, uh, and so the original question from Win and Soul was, I have toxic traits that I bring to a relationship. How do I improve? I do it subconsciously. You go down and, and, dis and discern and discover and find and name those core beliefs down there, what you call subconscious, but I say it's even deeper. It's down there in the depths of your soul, the shit that you were taught about yourself. And you're like, well, how the fuck do I do that? I wrote a fucking book precisely for that. All of my videos that I put up on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Twitter, all of my videos are driving towards that. In one way or another, are driving towards the identification of your core beliefs. Why? Because naming the beast is half the problem. Being able to name the very belief that is driving you and the origin of where the fuck did this come from? You name those two things and they no longer have the power over you or their power over you is radically reduced and it's much more easy to flush the rest of it out. But identifying core beliefs, and this is what I do differently from most other therapists and I'm aware of, most other therapists and, and so forth are trying to get out the pain and the fears and so forth and I think that's great. That's all important work. But I go down to identify those core beliefs and help you begin to defang them. All right, next question. How do I stop myself from judging people? It leads me to a life of no friends. Ah, there it is. Isn't it interesting? I'm gonna deal with the second clause there and come back to the first clause. First clause is, how do I stop myself from judging people? Second clause is, it's led me to a life of no friends. That second clause, isn't it interesting how you're wanting to change, you're, you're wanting to stop yourself from judging people because you realize no one wants to be around me. Isn't it fascinating that it's no one wanting to be around you that has caused you to finally wanna change? And I'm not dogging you for that. You are absolutely basically putting an exclamation point on one of my core beliefs, and that is change will not occur until the pain gets bad enough. And your pain of having no friends and people not wanting to be around you has caused you to self-assess. The mere fact that you have the courage to say that and to admit it and to seek answers, I respect that. Because you're really wanting to step into the human race and really be a conscientious, deliberate person in this world. And I, I respect that. Um, and so, yeah, the pain of no friends is causing you to say, well, how do I, it's, it's got to be that I'm judging people. How do I stop judging people? Usually if we're judging people, it's because we got pain and hurt inside of us and probably some anger inside of us too. And, but even deeper than that, very often the person who is judging others was taught at a very young age 
that they were no good or that they were not wanted or that who they really are doesn't matter. Now, I know you're thinking, well, what the fuck would that have to do with my judging people? If you're taught, if one of your core beliefs is that I'm no good or that I don't matter, then the only way you're going to feel better is by when people lift you up or when I lift myself up and put, well, in order to lift myself up, very often we put others down. And so you're putting your others down as a way to make yourself up, as a way to make yourself feel better. Well, why would you be trying to make yourself feel better unless you had been taught that you're no good? And so you're judging people. And so you're asking, well, how do I fix this shit, Sven? I mean, great, that's what it is, but what the fuck do I do? This is what I've been talking about this whole time today, this notion of going down and identifying your core beliefs and where the hell they came from, how it was taught to you, because I, and I'd be willing to bet my left testicle if Vegas would give me odds on it, that it's one or two, one or both of your parents taught you. Because, why? Because those are the people who have all the power. And people say, well, what about school and what about society? I'm sorry, there's no entity in a child's life greater than a parent. And it can even be an absent parent, that mere absence sends an extraordinarily powerful message. Are siblings siblings important? Yes. Are other people who raise a child? Yeah, I mean, if the kid's being raised by a grandparent, obviously that person has immense power in that child's life. But more often than not, it's the parents and the messages we get about ourselves, such as I'm no good, and so I'm gonna put down others. Uh, Those messages were implanted by parents. And once you go back and identify those and their sources and how it was conveyed, it's extraordinarily liberating. And so again, that's what I wrote the book for. There's a hole in my love cup. Next question. Uh, I am a narcissist in all capital letters. All right, I respect your admission. Especially in my marriage, I realize that. How do I stop? Uh, you are a narcissist because you had, and, and people who hate narcissists and people who don't like narcissists or who have been in relationships with narcissists, um, <laughs> they may not like to hear this or many of them probably know it, but. You are that way because of the shit you were taught about yourself as a child. You were taught your lack of worth or, um, and some people say, well, no, my, the, the one I know, the narcissist I know, some were raised as narcissists, you know, some people who became narcissists were raised to believe they didn't matter and they were shit and they were no good and they were discarded. Yet other people who became narcissists were raised as the golden child. And you're like, well, how the hell could that be? Well, think about it. It's really not that great a leap. Uh, to figure out if someone was raised as a golden child, they're used to needing to be all the center of attention. And that they, they're, a golden child is fundamentally taught that your worth, you will be given worth. I will give you love. I will give you a Scooby snack if you do what's expected of you. It's the sales mentality. If you hit your numbers, golden child, I will give you praise. I will give you praise. And there are always expectations. The numbers, your quotas get bumped up every year. If you're the golden child or if you're a salesperson, the numbers are always getting bumped up, right? And you got to hit your numbers. Otherwise, I'll be disappointed in you. So the golden child is never allowed to be their authentic self. They, they thrive on that attention. They need it. And so they'll take and take and take. But it's because they were conditioned to believe that who they authentically are doesn't matter. You're just going to be who the fuck I want you to be. Of course, then there's the, goal, the uh, narcissist who was raised to taught their shit, that they're no good. And so they spend the rest of their lives stealing attention and stealing love from everyone else to fill that hole in their love cup, which can never get filled. And so what you have to do in answer to your question, traumatized and T, you say you're a narcissist, especially in your marriage. How do you stop? You don't stop. You can't just stop. As I was saying about 10 minutes ago, trying to change behaviors never changes behaviors long-term. You have to go down to the core beliefs that are driving those behaviors. And again, that's what I wrote the book for. 
All right, next question. Haunted Wolfpack says, you are the one that made me finally go get therapy and you made me feel comfortable. Um, I'm grateful for that. Thank you for saying that. I know there are a lot of people, uh, not a lot, there's some people who comment on Instagram or TikTok and say, wow, Sven, you've got like this big presence and you swear a lot and you come off as angry or you look mean or whatever. And I say, I look mean? Oh, so I'm being judged based on how I look, really? But that's not the point. The point is, I don't work for everybody. My shit with the swearing and, and going really, really deep and moving very quickly doesn't work for everybody. So when I hear you say that, Haunted Wolf Pack, that I'm the one that made you finally go get therapy and that I actually make you feel comfortable, that the swearing and the big energy and so forth makes you feel comfortable, I think that's fantastic. And it's a testament to the notion that not everyone wants kumbaya therapy. There's nothing wrong with that kumbaya and you know, nice and gentle and let's all talk in quiet tones. There is nothing wrong with that therapy. It works for a fuck ton of people. But then there's another fuck ton of people that it doesn't work for who want the intensity, who want to go faster, who don't want results two years from now while we you know, be gentle with each other's feelings. I'm gentle with my people's feelings, but we move fast, all right? And, and it's, you know, it's pretty, well, it's badass, it's tough, but it's also loving. So for you to say that in these uh, TikTok lives uh, and on the podcast and on uh, the videos that it makes you feel comfortable, I think that's fantastic. And, and it's a nice, nice feeling. Thank you for saying that. That's great. All right. Next question. I am a grandparent that is raising a grandchild. First of all, kudos to you, Gemini Sass. I think we all respect you for that. Um, and what you say next sort of says why. Uh, you, you say, I'm a grandparent that's raising a grandchild. What can I do to get the attention of the parents? And I'm assuming you mean the, I'm going to assume you mean the attention of the parents to sort of, you know, buck up, get it, get their act together and start parenting their, their children. Um, First of all, the best thing you can do, the most important thing that you can do is the thing that you're already doing. And that is giving love to, I, I'm sorry to say it, but an unwanted child. If those parents wanted to parent that child, I, I hear you saying loud and clear, great, go for it. So the mere fact that you're bringing love, you are being an instrument of love in the world and an instrument of strong parenting uh, in that child's world and making that child feel wanted, making that child feel that they are worthy of love, making that child feel that who they really are matters, fucking matters. The fact that you are doing that, God bless you, end of story, you're doing great. And I admire you for it. And I mean that. And I think everybody on here admires you for it too. But that's not the question you ask. You ask, what can I do to get the attention of the parents? You can keep conveying the message simply and clearly. Now, I will give you one potential tip. And, and all you can do is keep conveying the message simply, clearly, and strongly, and don't back down, all right? They may never change. But the best thing in any case, uh, when we have a truth, is to convey that truth simply and clearly and boldly. Um, that being said, I do want to do a, a very brief <laughs> mention of the fact that some people respond to the hard sell and some people respond to a soft sell. And as I counsel my clients who are, you know, corporate execs and own companies and who are working with employees or who are working with um, maybe their own family or who are working with customers, some people don't respond to the hard sell. And if you've built a business, you've probably done a whole lot of hard selling. And a soft sell is a different thing. I personally don't respond to a hard sell. When someone's pushing me, pushing me, hectoring me, pushing. It's just like, you said it once. I literally heard you the first time. 
I ingested it. And this is something that my girlfriend and I, we go round and round on at times. She built this very successful company. And I'm like, honey, honey, you don't have to push. And she says, I'm not pushing. I'm just giving you, honey. I said, no. She's like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and she's great. I love her to death. Um, but the bottom line is, is some people don't respond to a hard sell. And if you have been in hard sell mold, mode pushing your whole life or making things happen, uh, it can be hard to throttle back to a soft sell. Uh, conversely, if you're used to sort of tap dancing, it can be hard to stand up and be bold in what you're selling. And the truth is you ask the question, what can I do to get the attention of the parents? Okay, you are selling. You're trying to sell a point of basically, hey, come and fucking parent your kid, right? And that's legit. You have every right to say that while you're simultaneously raising their child. Hell yes, you have a right to say that. So my question to you is, are you a normally a hard sell person who maybe in this case needs to read their audience and maybe a soft sell would work better? Or are you generally a tap dancer who generally soft sells things, who maybe needs to be a bit more bold. Think about who your audience is. Who are the parents? How might they best respond? And maybe the soft sell is a slower sell cycle. You just take your time and you're just planting seeds like a farmer plants and waters seeds. Just a thought. All right. After this short break, I'll take you, take you, take you deep right here on the Badass Counseling Show. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months, and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt. No shit. He made me do homework, too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. What's the Badass Got Next? I'll tell you what I got next. I got more kick-ass questions I just did a question on uh, a grandmother raising her grandchild, and then this one pops up, and this is from Vic. Vic says, as a child who was raised by her grandmother, stop trying to connect with the parents. Love your baby. Vic, you got an excellent point, indisputable, and as you heard in my answer to the grandmother, I applaud your efforts, and what you are doing is honorable and bringing love and bringing a sense of mattering and a sense of feeling wanted to that child. But there's another piece of it, and that is in my answer, and I wasn't explicit on that, that, but I will be explicit now, and that is to any grandparent raising a child or active in the raising of a child, even if you're not the primary uh, parent or primary caretaker, is it's hard, <laughs> parenting's always hard, but as a grandparent, there's the added element of, this was supposed to be my time. And every person has a right to feel that feeling. And the grandmother that I was just speaking to, wondering how do I get the attention of the parents, she has every right to sort of want her life back. And I'm sure she's bringing love to that little the grandbaby or grandbabies. I have no doubt. I believe it 100%. But she also has a right to her own life. And, and it's a very normal feeling to feel like my, my life you know, I, I'm not getting, the, I, I worked my ass off to finally have my life and get to be free and do some of the things I want. And now because of these irresponsible parents whose child I'm raising, my life is feeling stolen. And I don't begrudge any grandparent who's working, uh, you know, to, to raise a grandbaby or is active, um, that the parents are depending on that grandbaby. That grandparent has every right to feel that way. Every right to feel that way. Now, in your actions, you're still loving towards that child and supportive and so on and so forth, but you have every right 
to try to get the parents' uh, attention because in, in the end, what's really happening as a result of these parents not raising the child is that the child is being sent messages about their own worth, their own mattering, that my own parents didn't want to raise me even though I know grandma and grandpa tried to get their attention, tried to coax them back in and so on and so forth. That's an extraordinarily powerful message for a child to receive that I don't matter. And so I encourage uh, the grandmother to continue to love on that child. But, you know, as with any person who works and raises a child or any person who does volunteer work and raises a child, the child doesn't have to consume all of your life energy, which means you have other life energy left. And I would encourage you uh, to the grandmother I was talking about before, talking to before, is continue to do things that feed your soul. But I think you have every right to push those parents, whether in a hard sell or a soft sell, to get back into the loop of their child's life in a healthy manner. Why? Because the child needs it, but it could also be that you need it, that you've earned the right to have some freedom in life. And right now you don't get it because you're raising that that grandchild, those grandchildren, and I applaud you for that. And if you want to continue to, you know, sort of peck away at the parents, I can't begrudge you that. You've earned that right. All right, next question. Why am I willing to put myself in positions where I'm not a priority? You put yourself in positions where you're not a priority. First of all, I love the way you asked that question. Why is this? So clearly it's a pattern that you've seen in yourself for years, right? And no doubt in that pattern, there's pain, there's affect, there's feelings that have grown out of that. So you're identifying a problem and you're identifying the pain that you're feeling from that, right? And you ask, impassioned, why am I willing to put myself in positions? So listen to what that word, willing. So that implies a passive voice. I'm allowing this to happen. Why am I willing to put myself in positions where I am not a priority? And this goes all the way back to what I was talking about in the very beginning. I've talked about multiple times today, and that is core beliefs. Because I would, I would bet million to one that, and, and if we were working together or if you were on the show, uh, the Badass Counseling Show, and I was counseling you, or if you were a client, I guarantee I'd be able to drill down and determine that at somewhere in your past, you got an extraordinarily powerful message, likely from one of your parents or the grandparent that was raising you. Um, you got the very powerful message, you are not a priority. Either your voice was silenced or you were mocked or ridiculed for what you had to say or what you wanted. Or maybe there was no room in your home because there was one parent who was a tyrant or two parents or your parents were checked out. That in either explicit or implicit form, the message got conveyed to you, you don't matter. Your feelings don't matter. What you want doesn't matter. The underlying message is you don't matter. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to core beliefs. And you guys have heard me use this example. I talk about it in the book. And that is, you know, when the, when the road crew is coming out and putting in new sidewalks out in front of your house and they level it and they make it so picture perfect and then they put tape around it so all the little peckerhead kids in the neighborhood won't come out there and walk in it with their little fucking feet, right? They put that tape around, but then they go home at the end of the day because, well, it's dinner time. And what happens? All the little peckerhead kids in the neighborhood come out and they press their hand in it or they write, you know, Tommy is a fink or whatever. And then those hand prints or those messages harden overnight, don't they? They calcify. It's the same way with the soul of a child. When we are children, our soul is wet cement and whatever messages get pressed deep inside of us harden, they calcify, they concretize 
And they become that uh, those core messages, that virus that infects the operating system of your life, and they run the show. So when you ask this really great question, really great question, Maggie, why am I willing to put myself in positions where I'm not a priority? Because you've been taught you're not a priority, and that is where you're comfortable, and you've been taught, in being taught you're not a priority, you're being taught, you were taught, I don't matter, and my speaking up isn't important, I'm not important. And therefore, until you go down and identify that message and where the hell it came from and who taught you that, until you do that, it will continue to run yourself. Or you can try to overpower it with willpower. No, I am a priority, and I'm gonna just gonna speak out every time I feel like I'm a, a priority. And that's sort of the willpower, folks. But what I've seen working with extremely successful people and normal people and very, very, very poor people working with the homeless for years is that the soul is more powerful than the will. You can have all the willpower in the, in the world. You can build edifices to the sky. You can surmount mountains. But in the end, the messages of your deepest soul that were put in there at a very young age will grind you to a stop and they will bring your willpower to its knees and you will be forced to face those messages. All right, next question. What have you got for me, fine people? Here we go. Oh, here's a good one. It's a great relationship question. I like this one. Uh, how do you learn to open up to serious relationships? I can never open up, but then I crave intimacy. Right, right. It goes back to things that happened in your past. Now, it can include all the way back to childhood, but it most certainly includes previous relationships. People shut down. You say, how do I learn to open up? Well, what's the opposite of open up? Shut down, right? People shut down. People hide behind walls in life. They hide. Why? They're afraid of getting hurt. Well, what would cause a person, if a person their whole life um, you know, had been hiding, what would cause them to be afraid of getting hurt? Well, that they've been hurt in the past. So you're hiding behind your walls. You're fearful of opening up for fear that if I show you who I really am, you may not like me or you may take advantage of me, or you may breach my trust and hurt my heart. And it's happened in the past, and it could have been in past relationships, or it could have been way back in childhood, that it was just not safe to reveal my real self, to uh, be, say, do, and become on the outside who I really am on the inside. And so you've kept that shit in. So here's what we do. When we're in, and I've been there, all right, where you're in a relationship, in an intimate relationship, and you long to be intimate with that person, not just physically, but have that really deep soul connection and be companions, you know, the whole schmear. And so you hide behind the walls though because you've been hurt in the past and you're waiting, 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 waiting for that perfect relationship, that pain-free relationship. When I can finally open up, that person I can totally finally trust and I can finally open up, then that's when I'll reveal who I really am. But here's the problem, until then, well, first of all, the pain-free relationship doesn't exist. It's a myth. I talk about that in the book, the, the myth of the pain-free relationship. There is no relationship where there's no pain. All there is is, you know, anytime there are two people or 200 people in a community, there's always going to be the bumping of elbows and the bruising of ribs. So the pain-free relationship doesn't exist. And so you're going to get your feelings hurt and that's going to cause you to stay behind those walls. But here's the problem. That other person, this new person, not the ones who have hurt you in the past, but this new person may be knocking on those walls saying, hey, let me in. I want to get to know you. And that's how we bond with someone is when we get to know their authentic self, their fears, their anxieties, their aspirations, their dreams, their letdowns, their past. 
okay? But, and so this person's knocking on those walls saying, hey, open up, hey, open up, open up. But you were afraid to, we stay behind those walls because I'm afraid if I open up, they'll leave me, right? And that would be a fate worse than death because it's a confirmation. See, I suck, they walked away. I want, you know, I'm alone. Okay, see, I'm no good. Okay, so we keep those walls up and they keep knocking and knocking and knocking. And maybe it's a perfectly good person, wonderful, kind, loving person, but we're still so afraid. And eventually they get tired of knocking and they walk away. In other words, the very thing we feared most, we just created because we're terrified to open up, right? So you ask the question, Nolia, how do you learn to open up in serious relationships? I can never open up, but then I crave intimacy. You open up by doing the very thing we've been talking about uh, throughout the show this evening, and that is you go down deep inside and you identify those pains that caused you to close down in the first place. You identify the people that have hurt you in the past and all the feelings that came with it, and you begin to flush out all of the pain, all of the fears, and then going all the way back to your childhood, all of the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself because that is what is keeping you living in fear, that fear of getting hurt again. But if we go back to those original wounds in previous relationships, but especially back in childhood, because it was those childhood relationships and those messages that were the necessary precursor for uh, being in relationships that hurt you even more because they were familiar, okay? And as an aside on this notion of opening up, we're all familiar with that term brutal honesty. I personally am not a believer in brutal honesty. You wanna know why? I mean, there are times when you gotta be, you know, just point blank honest with someone. I'm not really a believer in brutal anything. And the reason with brutal honesty that I don't like it is because very often what all brutal honesty is someone going around saying, well, this is what's wrong with you and that's what's wrong with you and here's what's wrong with you and then that's what's wrong with you. Well, anybody can do that. That's just called being a dickhead. You know, oh, this is what's wrong with you. Fuck you, all right? A brutal honesty? No, no, no. Do you want to know the people that have real courage? It's not the ones who are brutally honest. It's the ones who are what I call radically honest. What I mean by that is, this is a person not going through life or going into relationships saying, this is what's wrong with you, this is what's wrong with you, and this is what's wrong with you. I'm just going to judge you, well, judge you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, that you're all fucked. No, the person who's radically honest gets in a relationship, a friendship, a love relationship, um, whatever it might be, and says, this is what's wrong with me. They reveal themselves. Rather than calling out someone else, they, re they begin to, not all at once, but bit by bit by bit, be vulnerable and reveal their dreams my own aspirations, my own fears, my own pains, because that's what connects people. But that's what people are afraid of, being radically honest. Wait, show you who I really am? That's terrifying. What if you didn't like it? What if you walked away? Exactly, exactly. There's always that risk. And that's why love, true love, which is such a cliche phrase, but true love is when we are opening a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to this other person. And it's gotta be reciprocated too, because you're just walking into a fucking, you're cannon fodder if you're just continually opening, opening up and the other person isn't. So it's on a somewhat one-to-one -one ratio or one-to-two and then two-to-one, one-to-two, you know, but it's where two people are opening it up and opening up and being vulnerable and really revealing their most authentic selves. That's radical honesty. And that's the shit that binds people together. All right. I'm going to take about one more question and then we are going to call it a night. Oh, this is a good one. Jenny asked a really good question and I'm going to ask that everyone not pile on to Jenny. Okay. And I'm not going to let you. Jenny asked a very good question that's really a hot button in our culture right now. And she asked, um, why am I such a soft parent? 
They beg and beg and I give in. Why am I such a soft parent? They beg and beg and I give in. They beg and beg and I give in. They beg and beg and I give in. The mere fact that Jenny is saying, why am I a soft parent, such a soft parent, and putting it out there says she doesn't like it. You wouldn't ask the question if it wasn't a problem. So clearly for you, it's a problem. You don't like being the soft parent, uh, being such a soft parent. They beg and you give in. That indicates to me that you fear not giving in. You fear a hard no. If I were to speculate, you fear them not being happy with you. One of the questions that I regularly ask parents uh, whom I'm working with clients and so forth is I ask them the question, what percent do you want your children to respect you and what percent do you want your children to like you? Now, there's no right or wrong answer. Is it 65-35? Is it 20-80? What's the breakdown? And one of the things that I tell them, and this is what I used to tell uh, the NCAA coaches that I would counsel back when I was an NCAA strength coach, and I was sort of responsible for counseling the other coaches and so forth, is I would ask this exact same question. What percentage do you want your athletes to like you and what percentage do you want your athletes to respect you? And what I discovered over time was that um, the percentage that the coaches wanted their athletes to respect them was directly correlated to their winning percentage. And the percentage that they wanted their athletes to uh, like them was inversely correlated to their winning percentage. The more they wanted to be liked, the lower their winning percentage. It's the same way really in parenting. The more you want your children to like you, the more you are using them to get your own needs met. Precisely with the coaches, you want your athletes to like you. Your athletes don't exist to like you. That's what your friend is for. That's what your buddies are for. Your, uh, the other coaches or your wife or your husband are for to like you. You exist to draw the greatness out of these athletes. Well, it's the same way largely with your children. If you're needing your children to like you, you are coming into parenting with some deficit and you are using the exact wrong people to meet that need. You are using the children. You are fundamentally wanting the children to pour love into your love cup rather than realizing you exist to pour love into the child's love cup. So what you have to do is drill down into your past and discern where the hell did I learn that I was of such little worth and I'm terrified of standing up and saying no, that I'm fear, fearful of children not liking me. And one of the things you, that would also be helpful to understand, and I write about this in my book, uh, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, is children love parents more than parents love children. And I get a lot of blowback from that on parents. But if you read the book, yeah, I think you'll get my explanation on that. Um, but you have to understand your children are going to love you even if they don't like you. But you have to have the courage to not be liked. You have to have the courage to say no, that your words, your action, your wisdom, your knowledge matters, and that you are actually, in most cases, generally know what's best for the kid. Now, we begin to let go of power as time goes on and let the child have their life back, but I would be willing to bet you're wanting to be liked by your children, and that's at the root of the problem. Well, to all you fine people, thank you for tuning in, and I say it to all of you, welcome to 2023. On behalf of my producers, Rob and KC, to all of you around the world, I hope you have a happy new year and thanks for tuning in. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.